Hello, welcome to Thought About Food, a podcast on food and food studies. Each episode, we look at important issues around food, and we talk to academics, activists, policymakers, chefs, or anyone who works on these issues. My name is Ian Werkheiser, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley and director of the Center for Collaboration and Ethics at UTRGV. Before I get to this episode's guest, a quick update. We've launched a YouTube channel as a companion to this podcast and to feature some of my other work in the philosophy of food. As listeners to this show know, I often ask students in my philosophy of food class to make video presentations of food that has a personal meaning for them, just like I asked the guests of the show. So to start the YouTube channel off, I'm putting up the video presentations of some of my students who agreed to share their presentations with you. The first video is up now, with more coming soon. It's a presentation on carne asada in the northern Mexican slash South Texas style, and I love the way the student Carlos talks about the role that food plays in his culture and in his own life, the way different people in the family have different roles in the preparation of the food, and shows us his yard with his chickens clucking in the background. You can find a link to the video in the show notes. Consider subscribing so you can see the other videos that are coming soon. Today, I'm talking with Julia Gibson, a philosopher who lives on Ryder Farm in New York State, which their family has owned and run since 1795. We talk about a lot of issues related to managing a multi-generational farm co-owned by an extended family, including how decisions are made, their current attempts to get a conservation easement to protect the farm into the future as the area around the farm gets developed, issues of justice involved with owning a farm on land that was originally stolen from indigenous people, and, in a connection to the previous two episodes, her work as a vegan living on a farm with livestock and hunting to think through animal rights, animal welfare, and how to talk about those things with her family. This was a fantastic conversation and exactly the kind of episode I want for this podcast, with talk ranging from abstract philosophical concepts to very concrete and specific issues around food. Let me read Julia's biography. Julia received their PhD in philosophy at Michigan State University, and in fact, uh, was a colleague of mine when we were both graduate students there, I'll just add, writing her dissertation on palliative and remembrance ethics for the dead and the dying of climate change. She envisions her research taking shape where the boundaries between feminist, political, and environmental philosophy grow pleasantly and productively murky. Before obtaining their MA in philosophy from the University of Colorado, Julia spent a number of years in Portland, Oregon, working at an international salmon conservation organization and as a collective manager and produce expert at a community-owned grocery store. She received her BA in philosophy and Russian studies from William Smith College. Julia has authored publications in environmental ethics, eco-criticism, bioethics, technology studies, mobility studies, and animal ethics. During her postdoctoral fellowship in the philosophy department at Queen's University, Julia explored the synthesis, tensions, and incommensurabilities of decolonial and interspecies justice. This research finds material, emotional, and spiritual expression on their family farm where Julia lives and works on unceded Wappinger territory. In addition to brush hogging, berry picking, and chasing down cows, her lived philosophical practice on the farm involves further developing death ethics as part of a holistic intergenerational politics on and for the lands they call home. And now, here's my conversation with Julia Gibson. So let me just start by asking you, um, where are you calling me from? Where are, we, where are we talking from? Yeah, I'm talking to you from Ryder Farm in Brewster, New York, which is located on the traditional territories of the Wappinger and the Muncie Lenape peoples. And um, I live on the farm full-time at the moment, and I grew up in this area um, 
and um, I'm I'm excited to be back in the Northeast, um, where I've wanted to get back to for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is and this farm's been in your family a long time, right? Yeah, the farm's been in the family since 1795. Yeah, that's that's a long time by American standards. Yeah. That's a very long yeah. time. Yes, by American standards, and um, it was my. It's like I always have to sort out the greats and the great greats. Um, my great 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 grandfather who built um, the farmstead house, and um, all the members of my family trace back to his son. Colonel Stephen Ryder, um, and um, he had four sons and apparently other children that we just sort of write out of the story. But the four sons then had these four branches of the family that were connected to the farm. And in the early 20th century, the farm was incorporated um, as a way of making sure the the like matriarch that was running the farm at that point was could be taken care of in her old age. And so since then, we've had shares. So the shares are all owned by family members. Um, and it's a very unusual arrangement. Um, we have our our family shareholder meetings or at the family reunion, which I thought was normal growing up. That, sure, all families. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely all families have shareholder meetings annually. I think that's I think we all we all remember that from our childhood. <laughs> And it was on the 4th of July. So that's also the only thing I associate with the 4th of July is like shareholders meeting. Um, and then like potluck and some other thing like lawn bowling and things like that, which I also thought lawn bowling was a lot more common apparently than it is. Um, <laughs> but it, yeah, so it creates this really interesting dynamic where you have like 70 different family members um, that own the farm. Um, and we have three of those four remaining branches existing at this point. That's interesting. And do they, um, I, I imagine there's like sort of different levels of involvement where there's some people that, you know, live far away, have a job, and there might be other family members who are dependent on it financially. Like, is it, is it a, is it currently being run as a farm for profit? Yeah, it, it runs the gamut from, um, there are three of us that live on the farm. Um, my cousin Betsy was the farmer or one of the farmers for 40 years about. And um, she did all of the vegetable farming um, in this century. My grandfather did, uh, they had operations alongside each other at one point. Um, he started organic farming in the seventies and um, was I think one of the first organic farmers in the Northeast and I believe the first at the New York um, Union Square Farmers Market. And um, they had operations, produce operations alongside each other for a number of years. There's sort of a interesting dynamic there. And, and then he retired and then Betsy retired from the vegetable side of things. And she still has, um, a herd of cattle and some horses and does hay and, and, uh, pasturing. Um, but the vegetable operation has been, um, taken over by, uh, the, our nonprofit tenant who was, um, started by 
another cousin and as an artist's uh, residency program and has such and they've been here for it's been about a decade and um, and they've grown and um, transitioned Betsy's operation into theirs on the vegetable side. So so that's the that's the basic farm setup, except for I guess there's another player, which is the family board of the farm so that, you know, we have this corporation in name, uh, Ryder Farm Incorporated, and that's the, the all the family, you know, family members have shares to that. And we have a family board and the board um, oversees, you know, the land that's not leased by either of those two farming operations. Um, we also lease a small amount of land to a neighbor horse farmer. So there, okay. So there's like technically three, um, but that doesn't cover the forest and the wetlands. And so the board oversees the forests and the wetlands. And we've been getting more into agroforestry um, as time has gone on. So that's sort of the next step. But the family question is, yes. Yeah, so there are family members who live on the farm um, there are family members who live locally and are here most days. There are family members who um, live pretty close and are here most weeks. Um, and then, you know, there are those that stop by only for the, we have three family weeks a year um, who stop by for those three family weeks. Um, then some who only stop by for that uh, 4th of July um, family week reunion shareholders meeting. And then some who we haven't heard from in decades. So it really runs from the gamut of from, you know, you live here, you're here all the time. Um, you're making your living here. You're caring for the land in some way to um, sort of far flung relatives that, you know, have inherited shares, but um, maybe have never been to the farm. That's interesting. And it's, you know, it's unusual, you know, the usual sort of uh, situation historically is passing the farm to a single I mean, almost always male descendant uh, and everybody else kind of being pushed out, which is, you know, like the the story of where I'm living here is this became uh, sort of the last land grab of the United States where second and third sons from the Midwest came down here to start farms. And so like that kind of push out into the free real estate, the open available land, if we ignore all the people that are already living on it, uh, the indigenous people whose land it uh, already is, then, uh, you know, that sort of like is that pressure valve off. But that alternative of keeping it in a communal ownership, I think, is a really neat uh, other way to do it. Yeah, I haven't come across another like it. And it is really interesting. Like I've come across families that have, um, you know, it might be a handful of them. And, and that's still really challenging to like to navigate, um, you know, maybe across a couple generations, um, you know, five or six different people. And one of the farms in the area uh, who has gotten conservation easement, it was at that, you know, when they applied for the easement, it was a brother and a sister who had inherited the land and they didn't want to see it broken up. And so they, but the sister, you know, wasn't involved. She wasn't the farmer and she, um, you know, what they wanted to figure out a way for her to be compensated for the land in some way, um, but not lose the, like lose that chunk of the farm um, that was hers. So, 
yeah and it's been it's an it really has been interesting you know there's the you know the board who who has been running things here and um and other people are involved you know not just if you know if they're on the board but that it has freed up family who have ownership in the farm to pursue other things as well so you know there's like a banking side of the family or there's like a an upstate um branch of the family um and or there's like there's an ohio branch of the family so you know folks that are i don't know it's just a it, it it's a it's a funky little way to do things and it's um i like it because i think that at heart it's a really democratic process um we technically use robert's rules of order but the way that things and and there are different kind of rules for if it has to be a strict majority or a super majority depending on what kind of vote that we're taking um but mostly the way that the board works and and most of our family votes come down to building consensus um it's pretty rare that we have to take a vote and really count what's like the the that the actual percentages and, and tallies um, are what it comes down to. Um, so yeah. I do like that about us. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, a lot of previous models of democratic, like, you know, voting for decision-making in small towns or, you know, in these sorts of situations where it's people that have other ties to each other, uh, I think often move toward consensus building because you have other extended relationships that you don't want to ruin through this kind of debate to win a particular vote on a particular issue. Um, you know, and then when that's, when those are removed, you know, as modern kind of neoliberal society removes all other kinds of connections people have to each other, then voting becomes really aggressive. You want the other position to look as bad as possible. You want it to sound as stupid mm-hmm. as possible. Yep. You want your, your opponents to seem as stupid as possible. But if you know, well, we're going to be participating in a bunch of shared activities, like for, the rest of my life, I can't make him seem too dumb in this particular debate today, uh, you know, makes it more of a mixed kind of consensus building sort of model. Um, you know, a minute ago, you talked about um, conservation easements. Can you talk about uh, what those are and how that's been um, how that's been an issue for your farm? Yeah, well. At I guess at their heart, a conservation easement is um the way it's been explained to me by our land trust partner is if you think of the, the value of land and I, I really like, I, I don't like talking about the value of land this way because it's very (laughs) antithetical to the other kind of things I'm thinking about. But um, within our, you know, private property um, setup that we've got, um, you can think of it as like a bundle of sticks and they're like different rights that you have to the land. And um, some of those are, you know, the right to subdivide and the right to develop. And so with most conservation easements, what happens is that you you give up and, and or sell like two of those sticks out of like the bundle. And those being the, the right to subdivide um, and the, the right to develop. For, for residential and or commercial purposes. And there can be um, 
different kinds of exceptions, like the conservation easement that we've been pursuing for Ryder Farm says it's a it's through the New York State Ag and Markets. And so we can still if you know, if this comes to fruition, we could still subdivide for agricultural purposes, like if we wanted to sell part of the farm to a cousin or someone else to to farm, then you could do that. Um, but so what happens to those two sticks is that you you sell them or give them up and then they are burned basically like you know and so they don't exist anymore so nobody holds those sticks they don't exist so for that piece of land um those rights no longer go along with it and so conservation you know land trust and other conservation organizations um are you know part of what they do is you know they can convince people to donate their land to donate their land to be put under conservation easement um and and grow um you know the amount of undevelopable land within their county or their region um but there are different programs different grant programs um on on statewide and and some on on you know the federal level that that allow you to be compensated for those sticks that you're losing. And so the, yeah, the New York um, state ag and markets, they have had this program for, I don't know, at least a couple decades. And we started as a farm looking into this back in the early two thousands. And I'll just take a pause here to, to, unpack why we did. Mm-hmm. Um, we're located on the border of Putnam and Westchester counties. And this is an area that has experienced a, a rapid amount of development as people from New York City move out and sort of, and the suburbs expand. And um, Westchester is a very affluent county. So, and Putnam, not as much, but we're, we're right on this border. And so the property taxes um, and the school taxes have really gone way up. And the reason that we initially transitioned into, um, you know, we, we reinvigorated our farming operation in the 70s is because, uh, I'm sorry, Ian, that this is super... <laughs> <laughs> no way this is great I, okay you have no idea the degree to which this is interesting to me i okay. uh like uh i'm from northern california and the it, the marin agricultural land trust and the way that it uh lets people use land but in usufruct so you can't develop on it like these are things i grew up thinking about <laughs> so i i'm i am right on the edge of my seat okay <laughs> so yeah so the reason that um we got back into farming in a more serious way was because these property taxes and uh, had really gone through the roof and we couldn't afford it anymore. And we were at risk of losing the farm. And one, um, there's a different kind of um, system than conservation easement, which is um, agricultural tax abatement or tax exemption. And so what you can do is you can, as a farm, you can um, 
apply for um, tax abatement. And what that means is that you pay um, almost no taxes on the agricultural parts of the land. So you still pay taxes on your residences and the land underneath them, depending upon your zoning. Um, but you, you pay really minimal taxes on the rest of it. So for us, we have 129 acres and we have 16 acres roughly that are taxed as they would normally be. But then the other, uh, what is that? 113 <laughs> acres, correct my math. At no, some no, that's point. right. Okay. You're there. <laughs> um, are, um, are, are substantially subsidized. So this is a pretty, this is a common um, incentive for first for small farmers and, and for farms. And it's how I think most of us stay afloat. But um, we've been interested in, in conservation easement since the, at least the early 2000s, um, partially for financial reasons and partially for, you know, ideological reasons. And the financial reasons are that even on those remaining 16 acres, the taxes have continued to climb um, really sort of astoundingly um, since, you know, we got the agricultural tax exemption in the late 70s, early 80s. And to the point where even on those 16 acres, it's we're, you know, always on the edge financially. And so the idea that we could, um, you know, apply to the state and sell these development rights um, and by creating a conservation easement on the farm um, and then set up basically an endowment for the farm with the money that you get. So with the conservation easement, when you're selling the development rights, what happens is that you, you know, the, the property gets a appraised for its full value and then for its the the value of its development rights. And the money that you so you are, since you're selling those two sticks, you get the, even if, though they're being, you know, burned afterwards, you sure. get the, the value of them um, in the form of a grant. And, you know, you can do whatever you want with that money. But for us, the idea would be to create an endowment that could support the farm in perpetuity. And then the value, the remaining value of the land um, is the total value minus the development rights value. And... Yeah, and it there's a there's a strong component of this. This is that is just you know surviving to the next generation. Um, and but there there's always been really strong currents within the family that you know the idea of losing the farm is is just you know, to specifically to like developers um, is really devastating. And it's one that was <laughs> impressed upon me from a very young age <laughs> that this was um, this was a place to take care of and that this was sort of our responsibility to take care of the farm and to ensure that um, 
that our family's relationship to this land continues. And perhaps, you know, it could also be framed as, you know, our stewardship of the land. Um, And so conservation easement puts a lot of us, myself included, um, at ease because it means that even if we do lose the farm, that the land itself um, is protected or has a, you know, a lot of protections at least. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because um, it, it's highlighting two sort of different uh, visions of land, right? So two sort of different ways of life that are coming into conflict with each other Um, because, you know, it's, it's increased taxes to support uh, public services and schools, right? Which, and you know, those are good things, right? So there's kind of one way of looking at the community as well. We are a community of uh, people who live here, right? Like it's a suburb, more and more people move in. Um, There's no real industry. People work outside of this location. This is just a place to live. And so we need to support things through taxes on individual people living there. And since they're going to use those public services, they're going to send their kids to those schools, then their taxes need to pay that. And that's how the town will kind of exist, right? Because it isn't <clears throat> it isn't like a traditional town where, you know, there would be, you know, some companies that are generating the motor for people living there and, you know, you could tax them. Um, so that's one kind of model of what land is. It's a way of fairly assessing who should pay how much, right? Because you have a lot of land, you have a nice house, you should pay more to support these public services for everybody else. Yeah. Um, but the other way of looking at it is that th- that's not what this is, right? This this land, this area around us isn't a place where you can just keep building houses. So um, part of the assessment of the taxes is based on the assumption that you're going to maximally get like cash dollar value out of this land through development, building condos or whatever apartment buildings on it. Um, and so that's how you're being assessed. But if you have a different vision of what the land is, that it's a place that uh, you want to keep mostly undeveloped, you know, you're using it to generate food, which I, I got to tell you, as somebody who eats, I also think is a good, <laughs> a good goal, uh, you know, that 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 sort of older vision of what this area of New York is, is coming into conflict with this newer vision. And so it's not really that, you know, it's not it's not like it's bad to have increasing taxes for schools. But the reason why it's increasing so sharply on you is there's an assumption of how you must view this land as a potential income source. And so they're taxing you on that expectation. And so the conservation easement is just kind of a way of enshrining this other vision of the land within this. You know, so, so there will be houses, a lot of houses near the farm, but you are sort of like creating a protected island. Yeah, yeah. And there's there, you know, I think there's always been some like grumbles in the family because, you know, we pay we're in Putnam County, but we pay Westchester County school taxes. Mm. Um and we haven't had a kid go to those schools for many decades. <laughs> right. Um, I do think that school taxes are a good thing. Um, it's just, it's just a, you know, there, there is some conflict in me there. Um, there is one other thing. Yeah. It, you know, in summary, sort of the way that um, a lot of us has been, have been thinking about this and I, I would definitely like to go into the details of sort of those of us who have not, um, is that we're already under, this is what I forgot to say, we're already under um, the agricultural tax exemption. And that's a that's a, a multi-year commitment that if you break, you are penalized. Um, right. And so 
un, with under agricultural tax exemption, we are basically the land is in practice, if not um, you know logical possibility, committed to not being developed anyway because that would violate the terms of the tax exemption. And so the way that a lot of us have been thinking about it is that, well, as long as we're committed to doing this thing for the, you know, foreseeable future, um, why not, um, why, why not get money for the, for that thing (laughs) that we're holding on to that we're not using? It's like, (laughs) but it did start out, you know, for, for me at least as a, as a much more emotional kind of, um, argument which was you know i don't want to see you know i, I don't want to see this land um de- like heavily developed um and um and so this seems like a pretty good way to do that yeah i mean it sort of feels like um an agricultural version of you know an in the united states in a developed first world country version of a lot of the talk about um, wealthier countries, developed countries paying less developed countries um, not to go through the industrial revolution again for climate change reasons, right? That, you know, you guys have an incredible, valuable resource in the Amazon jungle or in, you know, Indonesian rainforests or whatever it is. Uh, and if you could keep that, if which a lot of people who live there want to do, um, there's still an untapped you know, I mean, like you, I'm I'm a little reticent to say it exactly like this, but let's say the market considers there to be an economic value for that land if you developed it. And so by not doing that, you are foregoing a way you could make a whole bunch of money. And if your community is very poor, then somehow making that okay, helping those communities through cash transfers is one of the proposals that they talk about in, you know, climate change conferences. Um, just to sort of pay people for not realizing that sort of hidden uh, economic potential or the hidden value, if you want to think like an economist. Um, it's just, it's interesting that that happens, you know, at, in many different kinds of levels. But if you guys have been pursuing this since the early 2000s, why has it not, like, it's 20 years later, what's happened, what, what has been the, yeah. the roadblocks? Yeah. So we applied in 2008 and our application was turned down. Um, the way that these, this usually works is that it's, a a com- they're competitive rounds. So, you know, farms from all over New York put in their applications and they compete against each other, um, for the, you know, the pot of money. And our farm is, um, you know, relatively small compared to upstate farms. I know that people from New York City would consider Brewster to be up, upstate, but it is not. <laughs> so it's small, but it's also expensive um, because of where it is. So it costs a lot more per acre to buy the development rights down here than it does in upstate. So the state can, um, you know, put so much more land under conservation easement upstate with the same amount of money than it can downstate. Um, and so in order to, um, make that worthwhile, we really like had to be in their minds, sort of maximizing 
our agricultural potential on the land. And through the metrics of the of ag and markets, we were not. Um, there's a lot of sort of pastoral land that was, you know, not being, I guess, fully utilized. Um, we had, you know, minimal um, agroforestry, and we didn't have animals part of the farming operation at that point, which um, was a contentious thing then when they were introduced, but we'll put a put a pin in that for a second. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so we were this, you know, this vegetable farm, we had um, all kinds of vegetables. We, there were berries, herbs, flowers. Um, my cousin Betsy was particularly known for her flowers and herbs. And, um, and that's not, you know, seen as a diverse operation, um, even though it was a diverse, diversified vegetable farm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, two different kinds of flowers are very diverse from each other. Yeah. So, but for, to like, you know, maximize the agricultural footprint, you would, you would want to be using, you know, all of the, you know, prime farmland that you could, and you'd want to, it, it, it's just, it would be a much more, um, I don't, you know, they, these were businesses that my, that my grandfather and cousin were running, but they, you know, it wasn't like, you know, the place where, where folks from the city would come in for like, you know, a pumpkin patch or, you know, you, there are these places right. in the area where they just descend in droves and it's like huge money-making. Um, and it's like every piece of that is like of, of that land is, is somehow allocated to ag. And that's not what the footprint of Ryder Farm is, um, or at least not what it, it was then. It's, you know, and it's, it's still not really that. Um, so we were turned down and the advice we got was, you know, we were sort of astoundingly well supported by the community. Like we had so much community support for this, Interesting. but, but they, which they found to be fantastic. Um, but we didn't have our act, the farming operation itself was not like robust enough. And so we spent time thinking about how we could do that. My cousin, um, you know, she got a grant to upgrade the fencing on the farm so that she, you know, she could have animals out there and they wouldn't sort of be, I guess, wandering into our neighbor's yards, which to me sounds sort of um, idyllic, but I guess not all <laughs> um, suburbanites want cows coming around i don't know and she, she bought six um six cows and they're ugh, what are they they're red angus and like charlay which are both beef um cattle breeds and so we were hoping that that would sort of diversify our agricultural portfolio and um but the the funny thing is is that in this <laughs> In this latest round, um, there were a number of unusual factors. Um, the pandemic hit and the the normal rounds that they would have, the normal competitive round that would have been held couldn't happen. And so for, for that reason and some others, there were some funds that had been allocated and earmarked uh, for this program that hadn't been used. And I guess the state frowns upon that. And so ag and markets were under pressure to, to use this money for what they said it was going to be used for, um, which was, you know, protecting farmland. And 
Um, so they decided to do an unprecedented thing, which was to have a non-competitive round. So they upped the standards um, for the farms that could be eligible. Um, but it was a first come first serve thing. So if you could get in and you met the criteria, then you, and there was money left, then you were guaranteed to get that money. Um, so we really scrambled so that we could do that because it meant that we wouldn't have to go, you know, head to head with these upstate farms. And the, the irony of all this is that we ended up applying under an agroforestry category <laughs> because we have all this forest sure. <laughs> that they, that in the first round, they were like, why do you have all this forest <laughs> that you're not doing anything with? And I will say this is forest that is, you know, it wasn't around a hundred years ago. So it's like recovering mm-hmm. um, forest from when, you know, this land was like all cow pasture. Um you know, since the early colonial times to about, you know, the early part of the 20th century. And so it's not like a, it's not like an old growth forest or anything, but um, it's got some, it's got some relatively mature trees in there. And so, um, well, I mean, and yeah. old growth forests have a certain <laughs> amount of value, but uh, planting new trees, I mean, we were just talking about climate change a minute ago. That has, <laughs> that has its own value too. It's yeah. a, you know, new carbon capture. And there's a lot of work that need like these because of the, the, the number of complex factors, um, including the deer population, the white tailed deer, deer population, and and like invasive um, roses and barberry. Like there's a lot of work that could be um, put into these forests to help. Um, I don't know, like be doing some you know sustainable agroforestry. Um, and other ideas we have are. Um, starting up like a mushroom operation um, or doing a sugar bush. We either have a lot of sugar maples, but we're not really, not really doing anything with them. And um, so there are some exciting things that we could be doing. It's just funny that um, the thing that sort of sunk us the first time is the thing that um, might help us, you know, go the distance the second time around. So you haven't found out if that one was approved then? We have heard encouraging things, but we have not officially heard. No. All right. Well, be sure. I'll keep you posted. Well, it not, should we'll... be very soon that we would be hearing. Good. And if not, we'll record. We'll record a an update bump or something. Um, yeah. So then, let me take a step back um, and ask. You know, you're a philosopher. Uh, what is it like to, um, you know, is is it different at all? Do you think to be on this farm? And be thinking about environmental philosophy, philosophy of food, um, you know, ethics and justice issues like you do. Um, do you think that being on the farm affects that? Do you think that that affects the way you interact with your family on the farm? Um, how, or, do you, or do you think, you know, I mean, it's quite possible that that's just like a job or a hobby and uh, unrelated to this kind of day-to-day things. Um, no, they're all interwoven, perhaps too much so. And, uh, to a point where I'm like, well, I'm going to have to start thinking about some better boundaries for myself. Um, yeah, I've been wanting to move back here for a really long time. And, you know, grad school doesn't really afford you a lot of choice on where you're going to live. And, um, I also, you know, I, I went out West for a number of years in my early twenties, just cause you know, that's what you do, I guess. Um, and I don't, I don't regret any of that, but I really started, um, wanting to come home. And 
So I'd started spending some more time over the summers here. And um, I had been on the board and then um, had taken a little break. And then I, so I rejoined the board um, and, and started getting more involved. And for, for a good long while, I didn't connect the work I was doing in, you know, animal and environmental and agricultural ethics and politics to the work I was doing on the farm, which might seem strange. Um, but there, because it seems like they're obviously <laughs> connected, <laughs> but, um, I think that the way I, I feel so lucky to have um, been able to go to, to Michigan state, um, at a time where, you know, engaged philosophy was really being like embraced and thought of very creatively. Yeah. Um, but my philo philosophical training before then was pretty heavily analytic. So the idea that it was, you know, that philosophy was like personal and emotional and engaged and like land-based and I don't know, deeply felt and um, was, was not a thing that I had uh, a lot of examples of before coming to, to MSU. And um, I think more than that, it's, it's a kind of work that at the very least is, is not very valued within certain strands of philosophy, um, or at least is valued less as being sort of applied work versus, um, you know, more theoretical work. Right. Do the philosophy um, first and figure it out. And then yeah. after you've solved the riddles of the universe, then you can apply it to particular cases if you have time. Yeah. If you have time, but also like the really, the, like the, I think I was like taught that, you know, you're, it's like supposed to be a, like objective or something. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's like, like it's, if it's too personal, then it's like not philosophy. And that that's, such a strange thing to me now, um, but it really affected me. And so it like for a while, it, it really kept me from seeing both how I was doing philosophy on the farm and how the farm was influencing my philosophy. And the thing that helped me crystallize that um, or, or like note that that disconnect was happening um, and see what was actually going on was that we um, started working on an animal policy um, for the farm. Was this and, because was this because you were bringing in those cattle? Yes, or it was preempting the the their arrival. Sure. Yeah. There's been because we've been a vegetable farm. There's there's just been this long history of like animals on the farm being sort of a second thought like they haven't really been part of like the operation but they've been around and as a result there's been a good amount of conflict that's come up with regards to their treatments and I will say that all parties have always been very well intentioned um, but there's been some real differences of um of thought of, of like thinking about, you know, I don't know, just the roles of animals on farms. How do we take care of them? The roles of animals in our lives. Um, and so where these things, um, 
have created friction. There's been conflicts. And so I thought that it would be helpful if we had a document that actually laid out, you know, what that answered those questions, like what, how do we think of the role of animals on the farm? How do we um, want them to be treated? Like throughout the course of their lives, like, um, and it's, it's a very, you know, um, dry document, I will say, except for the, you know, the introduction. And it took, it took a good long while to, you know, build consensus around different, different pieces. But um, I think that project um, taught me more about doing engaged philosophy than anything else had to date. And living on the farm now is just sort of like, living that experience every day <laughs> Sure. Um, um, I think, uh, I don't think people say enough as they should about, about sort of, um, I don't know, like how little arguments matter in this context, like, like how, um, unhelpful it is to just be like, well, here's my like, um, valid and sound argument and here are my sources and, you know, your we family wasn't agree. your your family wasn't brought around when you put the three little the little triangle made out of three <laughs> dots at the end of your at the end of the email that you sent to them. Yeah, um, and it's like the family politics are fascinating. Um, there's just a lot of it's a lot of politicking, which I don't love, but have had to learn how to do more of. Um, and there's also just you have to be like. You know, it doesn't have to be your family for this dynamic to emerge, but like you have to really, you have to care about the well-being of the other people, of the people that you're in, in like relation with and know that, you know, like there's, you know, something that's come up more recently is that, you know, we have, um, you know, someone's partner is, is dying and, um, you know, it, it, something that's been a real challenge for me is figuring out like how to advocate for cows um, in a way that is not, you know, is not going to alienate this person, is not going to, like, it's just going to be like res respectful of the moment that they are in in their lives. And the capacity that they have at the moment. Yeah, and um, so so to be clear, you, uh, you're a vegan, is that correct? Still? Yeah, I okay. I still am vegan. Um, I did write this animal policy. I did write the part of the policy that has provisions for slaughter. It wasn't in there originally, um, but it wasn't going to pass without it. So I originally wrote it that we didn't have any provisions for slaughter. So there could be animals on the farm, um, but they weren't going to be raised um, for meat. Must have been kind of hard decision for you. Like, um, you know, there is an extent, I, I'm, I'm vegan as well, um, as you probably know, that you want to, you know, being a vegan is about drawing like sort of a, like a hard line and saying, no, not ever, right? Not just sometimes, not just less, but not at all, because you know, whatever particular reasons people have. Um, so you could imagine that pulling you to saying, oh, I'm not going to write that. Like, you know, I, I, my stand, which will get presumably outvoted by my family is that we shouldn't be doing this at all. Um, 
but then you're kind of taken out of the conversation, right? Like, you know, if, if yeah. you're just being that one weirdo in the family, then, uh, you're not going to be able to shape what does happen. Yeah. And that was, that was exactly the dilemma. Um, if I wanted it to pass at all, it needed this thing. And if I wasn't going to write it, someone else was going to write it. And so I decided to write it because I felt like um, there are some things that I was going to think of that other people weren't going to think of. Um, so that was one part of it. And I decided that my sort of moral discomfort around being part of it was not outweighed by the effects that not being involved would have um, or, or was outweighed um, by the effects that not being involved would have on the lives of like actual animals on the farm. Like for example, you know, we have in those provisions that they can't be sold at auction, that animals can't be sold at auction. Um, which felt really meaningful to me because I feel like it's a really um, harsh and sort of torturous and uh, the word inhumane is, is strange in this context, but you know, inhumane practice. Um, and we also, I also had that like, if an animal outlives, like can't, can't be sold for slaughter um, just because they've outlived their usefulness, you know? So that, that can't be a reason for, for killing an animal just because they're old. Right. Um, or, you know, aren't producing milk anymore or laying eggs or I think the big, the biggest thing though, in terms of shaping the kinds of um, like meat eating practices that can happen, you know, on and through Rider Farm is that meat has to be sold for, uh, it, it for on-site consumption or direct local sale. So it's either that, you know, there are, it's the farmers or, you know, the, you know, folks at the nonprofit that are, are consuming the cattle or it's people in the community who are having like a more direct relationship to their, um, to their meat. Um, and and so the cows aren't like moved through, I don't know. It just, it sort of, it makes it a more intimate practice in a way where it's like the, the distance between, um, between folks and their meat is, is like smaller and more intentional. And I thought that seems like a better alternative than just sort of raising the animals, sending them away. You right. Know? E even if in some ways, uh, you know, it's it's kind of harder. I've been hearing a lot of stories uh, during the pandemic of um, animals having to be slaughtered on farms that were previously just sort of trucked off somewhere and it being quite hard for a lot of the people involved in that. Um, you know, it's 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 a different whole relationship to have with the animals to be present at the end of their lives as well as, you know, throughout their life. Yeah. And I, I will say I've learned a lot about cows um, I bet <laughs> over the past year and I'm still learning, um, you know, and I, I, you know, one of, we had um, 
So those six cows gave birth to five babies last spring and summer. And um, they, they, they were four heifers and one um, bull calf. And I got to name the bull calf and his name is Bonnie Buttercup. And nice. it was nice. time. Like it. Yeah. He's a real sweetie. Um, he, you know, it was time for him to be, the time came to decide, are you going to be having a bull or not? And, um, you know, my cousin decided, no, we, you know, we're not going to want to deal with having a bull on the farm, which there are legitimate reasons for not wanting to deal with a bull on the farm. Sure. Um, so he was set to get castrated and she invited me to come and be part of that process. And, um, I did because I, I think I, I, you know, I had a lot of ideas about what that would be like and, um, but not any kind of firsthand experience. Mm -hmm. So it was a weird experience, um, but there were things that did make me feel better about, like you know, the 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 vets. You know, they come out in person, they do sedate, um, and there's you know, um, you know, pain medicine given. But the thing that I was really watching um, more than you know, Bonnie were you know, his mom and, you know, aunt, like the rest of his herd, like what were they making of this? And they weren't like freaking out about it, which, which was really interesting to me. And, and then they, you know, after the procedure was done, which was, was pretty quick, um, you know, his mom came up and just like snuffled around him a little bit and, you know, licked his forehead and then she was just contented. She like went off and started grazing somewhere else. And I, and, and so I think in my mind I had thought like, Oh, well, this must be just a very traumatic thing for everyone involved. Um, but as far as I could tell, and I won't say that I'm like a cow psychic. Um, well, not it, yet. You're, you're still yeah, learning about them. Yeah. It, <laughs> it wasn't like that. And so it, there's just been a number of experiences like that where, which I think are, um, really helpful for me to be thinking through um, the ethics of these things. And also, um, yeah, and then just, you know, thinking again about trying to, um, to write, to write about things, these things as philosophers with, without, you know, without experience, like, like, just sort of like a tangible experience of, of what they're like. Yeah. I mean, this is the promise of engaged philosophy, um, that you come into that situation differently than if you hadn't thought about philosophy in the past and studied philosophy, but also then experiences that you have. Uh, I mean, for one thing, you might not have gone if you hadn't done philosophy, you know, like you might like, ah, that sounds gross. I'd rather stay home. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, those experiences reflect back. Like it's the back and forth that distinguishes engaged philosophy from applied philosophy. I mean, you know, we're both, we were both brainwashed at Michigan State. So we have the same attitude, yeah. <laughs> attitudes about that. Um, so, uh, another policy or another um, sort of decision point that I saw you write about on your excellent blog, which I've been spending all yesterday reading, I'll, I'll, I'll put in the show note, <laughs> the show notes for other people to check out um, and go support you on Patreon, uh, 
is you have a changing policy or an evolving policy on hunting uh, on Ryder Farm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it in some ways was a similar sort of experience. Um, I I want to pause here for a second to just note that um, the the politics that I've been thinking about on the farm, my you know the initial connection to doing this work was um, very animal focused. Sure. And um, but as I started thinking more broadly about sort of my relationship to this land in a, in a more, I don't know, professional way, let's say, as opposed mm-hmm. to sort of more casually, um, the, the colonial dynamics of, um, of what it means for my family to have this land, what it means for, um, for my relation to it, sort of, uh, et cetera, have become, um, just as important a focus. And with the, with the deer hunting, um, I think both feature here in important ways. Um, because I've learned a lot, um, I think as a, you know, as an animal ethicist, um, by engaging, um, with indigenous philosophies, and, you know, thinking through, you know, practices of um, reciprocity and um, relationality and, you know, in- intentionality, all kinds of, all kinds of, ality, you know, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, Kyle and Kyle White and Chris Cuomo have that really great article about, you know, like care ethics and, and um, indigenous ethics. And um, that I also think is a, is a nice place just for folks to start thinking of it through those kinds of connections between, um, you know, feminist care ethics, eco-feminism yeah. and um, indigenous ethics. So these are some things that were really um on my mind when the deer thing came up and the deer thing was interesting. I, this is actually probably not, I don't know if this came, this was the subtext of the, of the blog post, but there is a conflict that had arisen, um, which I won't, it's, you know, very long and detailed, but the, the, in a nutshell, um, the conflict was that there were, um, folks on the farm, um, on the nonprofit side of things um, that did not feel safe um, or or had ethical concerns um, and or both about the you know continuing the practice of of deer hunting on rider farm and the way that it's worked um, in the past is you know we have this we've the family has this really great relationship with a neighbor and he's been you know, walking through our woods and and hunting here since he was a a kid with his dad. And, you know, he's a really fantastic neighbor. Um, He also, you know, he he helps us with plowing. He, you know, he's just a, he's an important part of our community. Um, But there, and, and the, 
And he's been, when we've needed, sometimes farmers, um, what they can do is you can get a, a nuisance permit for deer hunting outside of the regular season. And a nuisance permit also, you know, it gives, it's to hunt with um, firearms. And I'm sure it specifies which ones, but, um, and not just, you know, bow and arrow. And because normally you can only hunt for deer um, during a particular season. And you, I'm pretty sure you get different permits based on what, you know, weapons you're using. And so he'd been our nuisance um, permit guy for a long time um, under my grandfather and then under my, uh, my cousin's operations. But he also did regular season hunting on the farm, and that was with bow and arrow. And what was interesting to me about, um, he said he was like, well, you know, really, a lot of the times all I have to do is drive up in my pickup truck and the deer just run. So <laughs> a lot of his, his like, quote unquote, hunting was just, you know, showing up at the end of the day and the, and the deer would bolt into the woods from the forest. And it's sort of like they learned his, you know, pattern, they, he learned theirs. And, um, but the, you know, the regular season hunting, um, he had a pretty low profile. Um, and I think a lot of people probably didn't know he was out there. Um, but then there was an incident that I won't get into in too much detail, but that made, that made some folks feel unsafe. And, and then sort of brought up the whole, um, why do we even need deer hunting? Isn't this sort of like barbaric? Um, why do this at all? Um, you know, we're not a big, you know, we're not a big fan of this for some reasons, you know, that was the, um, you know, the nonprofits line. And, and of course there's just, there's mounds of more detail and nuance that go into this, but, sure. um, but the, but the bottom line was like, let's just not do it anymore. Like it's not necessary. And so for me, I was placed in this really strange position. Right, 2020 was a really weird year. And the last thing I thought I was going to be doing was like writing an essay in favor of deer hunting. I was like, <laughs> what is my life right now? <laughs> I mean, to, in, to be fair, that was a sentence that many of us said in 2020 in lots of different contexts. <laughs> um. And, but I, but there's, there's so many different pieces here. So there's the piece of the relationship to JJ, which is not unimportant. Like this is a, a lifelong relationship that we've had with this man. He's a friend to us. He's a community member. The relate, like he has a relationship to these forests and he knows more about these forests and these deer than anyone. And that was important um, to me and to the family. Um, but, and, you know, another thing that was important is that the, you know, the deer hunting, yes, um, is part of, uh, or, or at least can be part of, um, farming practices, but it, but it has a, I'd say equally, if not more significance, um, or an amount of significance for the forests on Ryder Farm. And that's what, you know, I hadn't fully appreciated when I start when I was sort of, I, I'm the liaison between the nonprofit and the family. So in a lot of these situations, I'm in the middle, whether I want to be or not. Mm -hmm. And so 
I wanted to understand where JJ was coming from. I wanted to understand where the nonprofit was coming from. And I wanted to try to find some sort of um, common ground and common values so we could move forward. And so part of that involved me trying to answer this question. Well, you know, if we don't need it for the farming right now, why do it at all? And that led to a lot of like research about the health of our forests and, um, and just sort of like thinking through, yeah, like how do we take care of, how do we take care of these forests? I don't know if we have really been taking good care of them. Um, and part of the issue here is deer and it's, and it's like a, it, there is no, there really is like no good solution to this. Um, you know, we, I guess we is not a great, like, um, settlers, you know, came in and extirpated all of the deer's predators. And we've, you know, built up the land in ways that mean that they're probably not going to be able to come back. Um, or at least not in numbers that are going to have a significant impact on the deer population. I know people in animal ethics have spent a lot of time thinking about um, this issue more broadly. One of the things that really surprised me was sort of that that um, folks who were thinking about this from from more of like an ecological perspective see white-tailed deer as more of a threat to you know New England's forests um, than climate change. So yeah. that's a fascinating kind of claim. And, you know, I dug into that a little more and, but that's, that's a serious claim. And even if it's, you know, half true, it's still alarming. <laughs> right. Um, and, um, so I spent a lot of time doing, I was like, well, is it safe? Like I, I looked up, you know, bow hunting fatality statistics, which there are, are pretty much none. It is a very safe practice. And, um, so there's that angle of safety, but then there's also felt safety and like what feels like acceptable forms of violence on a farm and therefore safe and what feel like unacceptable parts of violence on a farm and therefore unsafe. Um, and I just think deer hunting really like it puts it in your face in a way that, um, you know, like squishing bugs like off of potato plants doesn't because you don't see that happening in the same kind of way, but you're eating the potatoes, but that's definitely happening. If you're doing organic farming, there's a lot of bug squishing happening. Sure. Or if you're, you know, brush hogging. And I, I think I described this in the post. I had this really just um, surreal <laughs> experience of being on the tractor brush hogging, which is like, you have, a, you know, these big blades whirring behind you and you go out and you're trying to, you know, um, cut a overgrown field so that you can, in this case, it was so that you can encourage the kind of um, grasses to grow that are going to be ideal for the cattle to graze on. Um, but this field was, you know, it was like early fall last year. It was beautiful. And I'm mowing through it in this giant tractor. And these animals are just fleeing before me. Um, you know, there were obviously spots where deer had been sleeping, like they're and it was just, I felt like, like the villain from a nineties, like cartoon animal movie. Right. Specifically, like, specifically the secret of Nim is what I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I, yeah. And I, I am going to have to write something about that particular experience at some point. Also just the lawn mowing, like sometimes like a poor little vole gets like startled and it's sure. just like 
bolting for the woods. So there's just so many ways in which um, there is, um, I don't know, like violence and disruption happening around the farm already. And it's, it's easy to not see if you're not looking for it or uh, there's, I'm sure they could go into that point a lot more, but, um, but the deer hunting stood out and I was like, why does this stand out? Um, and I haven't, uh, or at least I, I posed the question, like, should this really be like such a standout thing compared to other things that happen? But, um, the other thing that was important to me in thinking through this is that is JJ's sort of is relationship with, um, the deer and, and the nature of bow hunting, which I did a lot of like research, like research that a lot of it makes me kind of sad. Um, but just, you know, with, when you're hunting with a bow and this is my, I, I have not, I, I do archery, but I, I don't hunt. Um, and so take, take my perspective here with a grain of salt. Um, but you, you, your angles are more important, uh, because you can't, you, you have to, and, and your aim is more important, um, because you have to target vital organs much more, um, carefully. Right. Yeah. Then when you're using like a high powered rifle. Yeah. And so because of that, it means that you need to know where the deer are coming from. Um, and, and like sort of plan out where your, where your shot is going to be. So you need to know like where they, like what their paths are, what direction they usually come down the paths on, like who, who all is in there? Like, what are their relationships to each other? Like who, um, you know, who is supporting, um, fawns, like who's not, you know? There's just a, you have, like, he know like, he has cameras out in the woods and he spends time reviewing his footage. He goes out there and he just, like, watches for hours at a time. When I learned this, I was like, how many times have I <laughs> walked past JJ in the woods and not right. known he was there? Um, and, and there's just, like, a really in-depth kind of um, knowledge that he builds up that I just, that I'm like, he you know, deer aside, having someone that has that knowledge about those forests is, you know, invaluable to us if we want to um, take care of them. So I guess it just become it became like, um, there just, there's ended up being so many different, like ethical and political dimensions to think about with with that one example and um including like leases and then it was like you know landlord versus tenants and like do we want to rely on that relationship you know structure because there's a lot of weird colonial baggage there um you know are you arguing are, are you saying you know we can do what we want in the forest because we're the landlord. Are you saying, um, we, you know, this family takes its responsibility to these forests seriously and, um, and wants to take care of them. Like those are, those are different kinds of arguments. Both were happening and both are always happening. 
both ways of articulating our relationship to this land are always happening and are being and are strategically deployed at different times. So the one is, you know, we're the landowner. This is our property. Um, and that relies on a very colonial kind of relationship to land. And the other is, um, I don't love the word stewardship because of its um, sure. various, uh, you know, there's, there's Christian baggage, there's, um, I don't know, paternalistic baggage, there's all kinds of stuff going on there. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I use it because I think that's the most accurate term to, dis to describe where we've gotten so far in thinking through these things. Like, I don't think that as a family beyond like me and like a couple other people, maybe we've gotten to a point of thinking about like the land and our relatives, like non-human relatives. Like that's just, that's not where we've gotten so far, but we've got, we do have this like, um, this more ecocentric, like stewardship hybrid thing going on um, where what it means to take care of the farm is like not just to take care of, you know, the old farmstead, um, but to, you know, make sure the land is healthy and, um, and yeah. And there's, um, some interesting conflict that comes up between, between those things. And, yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's the, that's kind of the, uh, you know, the big split in environmental ethics writ large in the United States, at least, you know, the idea of environmental ethics, environmentalism, and thinking environmentally as resource management, you know, for long-term responsible management of profits, right? So why don't you cut down the forest? Because if you cut it all down, then you don't have forest anymore. But if you cut it slowly, then you can have forest in perpetuity mm -hmm. um, versus a responsibility to the land, right? So like, you know, kind of a Muir or Aldo Leopold kind of idea that um, it's not the reason why you don't cut down the forest is because cutting down the forest would be a great tragedy, you know, un unrelated to the to the productivity of the wood. Um, and, you know, that those can often come apart, you know, very famously, uh, the Hetch Hetchy Dam was like, the, like that big first split, you know, in, in uh, American environmental discourse mm -hmm. a long time ago. But, uh, you know, I mean, Kyle has written about how just because you have one relationship to the land or to something like that doesn't mean that you if you live in an, in a world that conceives of a different kind of relationship, you still need to deploy the other one strategically. And that's, you know, the you know, the conservation easement is. Um, it You know, it is strategic in that way where it's like, yes, this this value, give us this <laughs> right. um, that we don't really value because we never want to develop it, you know, um, so it's not really a value to us, but it is apparently a value to you. Give us, give us the money for that. Um, but there were members of the family that um, that view the farm largely as a real estate investment, and and I'd say that's the the extreme end of things. But you do have so I, I um, that is definitely like a a, a voice in the conversation is. Um, yeah, is how to maximize the land as an investment. 
right. um, versus how to, I, I mean, and on the other end is like, you know, thinking about how to do right by the land. I don't, I don't know if it, this needs to be a polar, you know, relationship, but, um, you know, thinking about our relationship to the land, not just sort of in our own bubble, our own like rider bubble of like our 225 year history, um, or I guess 226 at this point. Um, but like that larger context, like how, how is it that we've been able to hold on to this land for so long and, and have the story not just be about, well, you know, we got that, you know, tax abatement and, and now we're going to do, you know, conservation easement, fingers crossed and can set up our endowment and without thinking about, um, you know, why, why this land was available for our family to purchase. Um, what are the kinds of um, like his, historical developments since then that have enabled us to keep the land um, yeah. and hold on to it and like have certain kinds of capital at our disposal um, when a lot of people have lost their farms and a lot of people have never been able to, you know, to claim farms or to, um, so I'm trying to move us more towards that bigger picture conversation in, in terms of how we're considering things like, you know, the deer hunting or, you know, even the cows or, cause you know, um, in terms of the environmental history of new England and the cows, um, the like cows and colonialism or, closely tied, not just in New England, but, but, um, across the United States. And, um, that's something that I've, you know, only been recently digging into more and it's kind of fascinating. Sure. Or, you know, uh, and, and even up until today, I mean, look at some of the conversations that happen around ranchers in and around Yosemite national park, uh, and the government grants that allow them to feed their cattle on government land. Uh, so, you know, it's land that the federal government owns, but then when they introduce wolves into Yosemite, um, the people who have their cows on that land think that they then, you know, their argument is, I, I couldn't exist if I wasn't using this land um, to feed the cows so that my land can grow hay, which I'll feed them in the winter. Yeah. Um, yep. But now you have, you guys have wolves on federal land. And so I'm going to shoot them if they come near my cows. And, uh, you know, so that, that kind of complicated conversation is, you know, it's, it's not a, an 1800s only conversation. Yeah. I heard about guard llamas, though, in these contexts, and I feel like, and there should be more guard llamas. <laughs> I, I mean, in general, <laughs> I, I just think as a as a anxiety companion animal, I'm going to start doing that. But, <laughs> yeah. um, so maybe I'll just, uh, I mean, we're going a little long, but kind of one other thing to touch on um, is another thing you write about a lot in the blog is trying to think about, you know, as you've mentioned a few times in this conversation, uh, sort of the a decolonial approach of thinking about the colonial past of um, the indigenous people who lived on this land, settler, settler colonialists who took over the land. Um, what sort of responsibilities do you think those kinds of historical injustices entail um, in terms of relationship to the land now? Yeah, well, Ultimately, probably land repatriation, um, which is a really hard pill to swallow. 
um, and really difficult to talk about amongst family. I can imagine. Um, And so I don't... hmm. Something that comes up when, you know, when I bring this up, there's, you know, there's a bunch of sort of, as like Taka and Yang talk about Settler Moves to Innocence, but I'm trying to think of the more interesting ones. Um, you know, one is that, you know, our family purchased this land after, you know, the indigenous peoples had already been moved off of it um, or or killed or, you know, their numbers, you know, either displaced or, or killed and um, so we didn't have any part of that. So why should we have a part in, in the solution? Um, and that really ignores, you know, the, the structural nature of, of settler colonialism. And it's, you know, as an, and, and, and as an ongoing institution, which is definitely part of the story of how we've been able to keep the farm. Um, and, and so part of the research has been in, in, in showing how the British illegally obtained this land from Dutch settlers um, who had themselves, you know, illegally obtained it. And so, you know, the, um, there was a Wappinger Sachem um, who went to court actually in London and, um, you know, sued, filed suit to get, this, this specific land back that the farm is on, not just the farm, but like this area. Um, and basically they told him, well, that would set a bad, really bad precedent. Um, so no, that, that is a oversimplification, but that's, <laughs> that was the gist right. of it. And so he came back and he said, well, to hell with the British, I'm going to side with the, um, with the colonists. So he fought, you know, he and um, other Wappingers fought in the Revolutionary War and uh, many of them died and they still got nothing. Um, and so this land is unceded. It's not just sort of the traditional territories of the Wappinger and sort of um, the Muncie Lenape had other, the, the Wappinger had, are the folks that had the primary relationships here, but the Muncie Lenape were also um, in relation to this land in various ways. Um, so it's not just the, the you know these traditional territories, but it's territory that you know, even as it was happening, um, folks were saying, you, "You, this is you know this isn't right. You need to give this back." And um, and I guess yeah, they they thought they were going to have better luck with the with the with the Americans. And uh, yeah, no, no, they did not. Um, they were you know pushed north into into Western Massachusetts and Stockbridge and um, the Wappingers were sort of absorbed into what, you know, gets, who gets called now like the, the Muncie and, um, and then eventually pushed West and North. Yeah. So thinking about how, I guess right now, all I, I feel like I I'm doing is, is trying to um, shift our values and relationship to this land little by little, so that that conversation, the conversation of um, what do we owe to this land can also be considered in this, in this truly decolonial way. And I think a lot of people are scared because they think, well, 
then we lose our relationship to this land, right? Like the, it, there's this, there's this, um, in the settler imaginary, they can only imagine like total dispossession. You know, if the, if the, <laughs> you know, they can't imagine other kinds of things that might happen. And, and, you know, maybe that would happen. Maybe it would be like, you know, we would, we would, um, you know, the land would be repatriated and then we would lose all relationship to it. Um, but we also, but that, that's not like, that is a very particular kind of assumption about, and it, it exists within a, um, itself a very sort of colonial understanding of, of how different peoples can relate to land and have relationships to land and like co-relate to it. Um, Another question, though, and this is sort of where I'm at in, in my in my research is, um, you know, we don't know to some extent what decolonizing the farm would look like, um, but, you know, the in the abstracts, um, given the realities of settler colonialism, it would be repatriation. Um, but we also don't know if there's any genuine interest in this land (laughs) specifically and, 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 and even what repatriation would mean, like, would it, you know, and so in order to really answer that question, um, we as a family have to build our own relationships to the descendants of the, of the Wappinger um, and Muncie Lanape and um, see what, they think and but the thing is is that we can't really we can't really do that until the family is ready to have that conversation because that would be really unfair um so i guess i'm trying to get us ready for a conversation that i hope will happen um and it seems really unsatisfactory (laughs) (laughs) that's where where it is (laughs) right i mean you know i don't know we 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 came in and left this conversation on uh the difficulties the promises and pitfalls of this kind of long-term relational consensus-based uh version of democratic decision making that you know it used to be common back when communities were a real thing uh but is becoming increasingly less so um yeah so the downside is there's no easy conversations (laughs) (laughs) um so one thing that i do in this um, in this podcast is I ask people to bring some food to share with the listeners. Cause the idea is that by sharing food, we share a little bit about who we are, about ourselves. Um, it's kind of a way to build connection. Um, I mean, ideally, you know, you'd like to actually sit and actually share food, uh, with people, but virtually, um, you know, just to talk about some food that's kind of important to you. So is, do you have a food that you'd like to talk about here. Yeah, I was trying to think about this. I will share a recipe. But what's funny is that I was trying to think of recipes involving food on the farm. Mm-hmm. But my relationship to food on the farm is this that I'm just so happy to have like, fresh food and sure. that I just eat it. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I'm just like, you know, like my, my tomatoes, they like rarely make it in the house. It's more like I go out and I just like, or that I have these little mouse melons that I love. And I'm just like, you know, that's my, that's my mid afternoon snack is I just go out and pop them in my mouth or, um, you know, with, when it's berry season, I'll go out and pick berries. And I know you can bake with berries, but I just think they're so lovely fresh that I often don't. So I wish I had a farm, um, 
particular recipe. Well, the farm particular had- recipe is go outside, <laughs> pick raspberries, eat raspberries. <laughs> yeah, pretty much just finished. like stuff some yummy fruit and veggies in your face. Um, but the I the other recipe I had in mind was I was um, I thought about if I wanted to share something that I feel like I had um, perfected or was working on, and I wanted to share something that I'm working on, which is. Um, uh, buffalo tofu pizza. Interesting. And the the first time I made this, it looked like a transporter accident. <laughs> um, it was delicious, but well. hideous. So I didn't even take a picture of it because I was so embarrassed by how bad it looked. Um, but basically, um, you can buy pizza dough or you can make your own pizza dough. I find... I I have figured out that when you make your own pizza dough, it really is worthwhile to measure the flour and to get that like extra fine Italian flour, but it's also fine to just purchase pizza dough. Um, And then I make a, like a a white sauce for the base, which is out of um, like cashews and broth and nutritional yeast and like onions and garlic. And I think there's some, spices in there um and then that's that is the base and then just like any kind of um for me like vegan mozzarella type melty cheese on top um but I really love um buffalo sauce and I love that vegan buffalo sauce is just as easy as regular buffalo sauce which is just like Frank's red hot and butter and um the geniuses that put those two things together. Like, thank you. Um, so I bake the tofu. I have a baked tofu recipe that I really like that involves like a marinade of um, like tamari and sesame oil and apple cider vinegar and powdered garlic and black pepper. Um, and I like baking it so that it has like that nice, like firm, chewy texture. And I cube it and I toss it in the buffalo sauce. Um, put that on the pizza and then I also drizzle the buffalo sauce on the pizza before it goes in the oven and then after and then also I make um vegan ranch from scratch which is surprisingly easy and mostly like mayonnaise and soy milk and then some other yummy things to flavor it and then drizzle that on top and do some fresh um dill or parsley and it's delicious, even if it looks like a horrible creation. <laughs> the thing, well, the thing that made it look bad is that the the um, I had trouble getting the dough um, onto the pizza stone. So yep. it, yeah. No, I bake pizza almost every week uh, on Saturdays. We do pizza in a movie at my house, and I make sourdough pizza dough. And you can definitely tell from the sounds coming out of the kitchen from me whether or not the pizza slid cleanly onto the pizza stone or started to fold over itself and like turn into some kind of hideous burrito yeah, kind of thing I, the, in the oven. Well, if you have any tricks, let me know. I tried putting it on parchment paper, paper and then sliding it on and it was still a mess. I love the pizza stone, but it, do you, it do just... You have a, do you have a peel? Like, a, like the, one of those giant metal spatulas? I do not. I would recommend buying one of those. They are ideal. And then you put... Um, if you have semolina flour, put that on there. Or otherwise, just put a mixture of regular flour and cornmeal on it um, so that it'll slide off. 
And then the the only problem that happens is if you accidentally have a hole in the pizza as you put it on there, so then the sauce becomes you know goes yeah. through there and becomes a glue. But it, it's it's doable. Um, I, I would definitely recommend buying a peel. They're not that much money. Uh, get in my opinion, get an untraditional one that you can disassemble so you can wash it more easily. Mm. But either way is fine. Um, well, thank you very much. I'll put that I'll put that recipe in progress uh, on the website for the show notes. In addition to. Um, your website, um, the blog that we've been talking about, which I think is really neat. And I, I would really suggest people go check it out. Um, but is there anything else that you'd like to promote or point people toward? No, this has just been such a nice opportunity, Ian. Thank you so much. This has been fantastic. And I love catching up with you. Thanks so much. That was my conversation with Julia Gibson. Links are in the show notes, including a link to their excellent blog about philosophy and farm life called Life on Writer Farm, which you should definitely check out her recipe for vegan buffalo tofu pizza, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, a link to the new YouTube channel featuring some more discussions of good recipes and the meaning of food in people's lives. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review, I'd really appreciate it. It helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Twitter at foodthoughtpod, and if you have a topic you'd like to hear discussed, drop us a line at thoughtaboutfood at gmail.com. Until next time, thanks for listening to Thought About Food. I hope you enjoyed thinking about food with us today. Thank you.